today, I will be preaching through uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So if you find that, open up to it. We'll stand together for the, the reading of God's word, and, uh, and then we'll jump right into the text, because we've got an interesting one this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the, the word of the Lord. Now concerning the coming of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that, he can, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is uh, by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that they all, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Uh, even confusing and, uh, and difficult passages like this are inspired of uh, your Holy Spirit and they are for our, our edification, they're for our growth, our building up in, in you. Uh, they are for the, the, the salvation of, the, of nations and uh, and I pray, Lord, that you will help me up here uh, as I proclaim your word to your people to, to preach the truth and to preach something clearly that, that uh, will minister to the souls of those listening now. Um, God, we, we praise you and we love you and we thank you for the good news that you are coming back and you will gather us to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so last week... We jumped into part two of our series through First and Second Thessalonians, which, uh, which has been titled The Past, Present, and Future. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote these early letters in his ministry to, to a young church struggling with figuring out how to stay afloat in a tumultuous context. Uh, they, the, Th the Thessalonians, uh, like most of the church in the first century, had been dealing with persecution. Pastor Ryan last week walked us through Paul's response to this um, in, in reminding us that the Thessalonians and, and we, um, that, we uh, that the Lord who sees all that is happening in the world will, will judge the redeemed church as well as the sinful world and God will be glorified. 
Um, but it isn't just the persecution of the church that is a threat to the Thessalonians. Persecution is an external attack from outsiders, vainly attempting to tear down the people of God and silence the gospel and, and stop the movement of the kingdom of God <clears throat> to expand into the, the, the ends of the earth. It will not work, and God, uh, God will, um, will be victorious as the gospel uh, is proclaimed of salvation for sinners of the, through the life, death, and resurrection of the sinless one, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. But in today's passage, <clears throat> we see that there is another threat, and it isn't one that the, the Thessalonian church uh, expects. See, the Thessalonian church has been frenzied to a degree by some who are teaching some strange doctrines about the end times. My notes just disappeared. That is going to be bad. Yeah, that's not good. Preaching on the man of lawlessness with no notes. There we go. Thank you for praying. Oh. All right. So we're talking about internal threats to the gospel. Like the network going down while I'm preaching from a tablet. Whew. Can you smell the sweat coming off of me right now? It's, I can, I feel, I feel gross. All right. So in today's passage, we see another threat uh, to the Thessalonian church. They've been frenzied by some who are teaching doctrines about the end times, but Paul doesn't really tell us what they've been told. But it has something to do with the timing and the coming of Jesus and the gathering of the church to him. The church thinks that they may have uh, missed the big day. And this has led to anxiety and fear and even a rejection of the doctrines handed down to them from Paul. The great threat to the, to the church in today's passage is not an external persecution or even the forthcoming man of lawlessness, which we're gonna read about and look at here in a moment. The great threat addressed in this morning's passage is, is that the people have allowed false teachings and false teachers to be... Um, to, to circulate in the church, which has led to confusion about the gospel and has led to fear, as we'll see. And, and then as we'll see in chapter three, when Pastor Ryan's back next week, it even has led to laziness, idleness among believers. False teachings and a failure to remember biblical truth leads to confusion, fear, and deception within the church in, in this and every generation. And through Paul's letter, uh, through this passage uh, uh, to the Thessalonian church, God is calling us not to be quickly shaken by falsehood as we remember and hold fast to the truth passed down to us from God's word. So in verses one and two, Paul gets right to the point. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a, or a letter claiming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul turns to the subject of eschatology. The, that's the, the fancy word for the study of the end. Uh, end times doctrine is one of the most controversial 
an exciting and, and honestly frightening subjects that the, the Christian message um, incorporates. There's a, an entire category of religious fiction dedicated to what the coming of Jesus and the last days might be like. You don't see a lot of book series written about the subject of, of biblical anthropology, right? And it's not because it's a boring subject, but it's because there's not a whole lot left to the imagination. Uh, since we don't know how God's story plays out, at least not uh, completely, we're left with prophecies and promises and, uh, and a whole lot of unanswered questions. When it comes to the end, the day of the Lord, that second coming of Christ, there's a lot of, there's a lot of question marks. And, and this isn't a 20, 20th and 21st century phenomenon. Um, it's always been exciting, and there's always been different opinions about how it will play out and legends surrounding the eventual and imminent return of our Lord Jesus. And, and there is a right answer out there. There's a, there's a right answer about the, the order and the nature of Jesus' return, and, and we just haven't had that spelled out for us precisely in Scripture. Uh, Paul's audience in Thessalonica had, has apparently had some end times teachings circling around which have unsettled and alarmed members of the congregation. Someone has been saying in the name of the apostle and his associates, that the day of the Lord has already come. And in these verses, Paul sets them straight. He's telling them, don't let anyone tell you that this teaching's come from me. This is not from Paul. This is not from the apostles. A spirit, a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, right? He, he, there's, there's false information circulating around the church. There's counterfeit teachings, a forged letter. And, and that's in the first century Christian church, right? This, this is like right at the beginning. They're already dealing with, with heresies and false teachings that are threatening the church. The, the words uh, quickly shaken in mind in, 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 our, in our scripture refer to, to becoming unsettled in our understanding. It, it's the false teaching has caused people to become unstable in their commitment to the truths that were, that were taught them by the apostle. This in turn leads them to becoming, uh, they become alarmed and anxious and worried. False teachings are dangerous. And as we can see, they, they cause real trouble in churches even churches who have heard the authentic word of God taught and preached. Paul and his associates had been there among the people, presumably teaching about all kinds of biblical doctrines, certainly sharing the gospel, certainly talking about the return of Christ, but, but that doesn't prevent false teachings and, and false teachers from being able to come in and, and make an impact. We have to be on guard to remember the truths handed down to us from the apostles and the prophets. And the way that we do that is not by, by leaning on human reason as our standard of truth. God has given us reason. This is a blessed thing. We're glad to have it. 
but we don't lean on our own reason as our standard of truth. We also don't rely on uh, a charismatic leader, a teacher, one personality with a cult formed around him, even a, a good and holy man who makes a great pastor and leader. We, we form and retain our beliefs by the right interpretation of the word of God handed down through the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. This is why our, our church is so committed to the, to the, the expository preaching of the Bible. See, my, my opinion may be off, I, I'm, I'm liable to, to make a mistake up here from time to time. Maybe even lose my notes and have no idea what to do. I and every other preacher are fallible. I'm, we're failable. But the word of God is not. It is infallible. And so we'll see in a moment that Paul, he's already been teaching uh, principles about the end times to the Thessalonians. Um, but whatever false teaching that was being passed around, it denied what Paul has already taught the church. And that becomes the main problem within this passage that we're reading today. Jesus even warned his disciples that, that this would happen. In Matthew chapter 24, verses four through, six, uh, yeah, four through six, we read, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will, be, they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. False teachings have led to an anxious church. But good biblical doctrine has a way of granting peace to its hearers. So, when is the day of the Lord supposed to come? Paul, Paul gets back into it in, in verses 3 and 4 of our passage today. He says, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul, a skillful pastor, seeks to quickly restore a little calm among his his confused and worried friends, brothers and sisters at the, at the church in Thessalonica. Jesus hasn't left you behind, he implies. He's, he's not coming back until the apostasy comes, the rebellion, right? And the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now that seems like a strange way for a pastor to comfort people, right? Like I, I'd, I've been doing this for a little while and I can't imagine trying to comfort you by saying, oh, don't worry, Jesus isn't back. He, we still got to deal with the Antichrist and a mass rebellion, right? It's cool, right? And I mean, like, that's, I, I just, I think that's funny. I, maybe y'all don't, but I do. But remember, the, the, the fear of these Thessalonians, uh, it comes from, it, it centers in this false teaching that they've somehow missed Jesus' return. The, the Thessalonians are used to seeing Antichrist figures emerge and, and rebellions and revolts to happen in, in their society. They live right in the middle of the Roman Empire. There are emperors and officials demanding their, their honor, right? Their worship and their praise in temples all the time. They see revolts and rebellions formed against government officials all the time. They come and they're squashed or some of them come and they take over for a little while. And 
it's, it's, while it's not easy to deal with, it's not something that they're, they're not prepared for. They're not, it's not, you know, those, those antichrist figures, those, those lawless figures in society aren't strange to them. But the idea that the Lord, in whom they have placed their trust to redeem them out of this world and to give them eternal life, and an inheritance in his kingdom, the, the idea of him coming back and gathering his people and then leaving without them, that freaked them out. They were nervous. They were anxious. It wrecked their church services. That's scary. So, so Paul reminds them of what he's already taught them. The, the rebellion as the ESV says, it's literally the apostasy, which, which means the, the great falling away, right? A, a great falling away has to come first. Now, now there are a few opinions about what this, this rebellion is. What, what does it mean? Is it a massive rebellion within the, the political context of the Roman Empire? Is it a, is it a mass rebellion in the, in the eventual future of... of a new world order and, and the tribulation force opposes them or whatever? Is it a falling away within the church? Is it something else? I really can't answer that. Paul doesn't give us a whole lot of details. He, he taught the Thessalonians some things that didn't get preserved for us in the New Testament, and so we don't have them as official church doctrine. And that's okay. We, we have what we need, but, but we don't have everything. The, it's alluded to in other books of the Bible, but nowhere is there a definitive answer to what this rebellion before the, coming of the, uh, the second coming of Jesus is supposed to mean. And then there's the man of lawlessness, right? The, the man of lawlessness, the lawless one, the son of destruction mentioned here. Who is that? Is it Caesar? Who's supposed to, to, to come? He's the, 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 the one who precedes the day of the Lord. Is it Hitler? John Calvin thought it was the Pope, which didn't win him many fans. A lot of American evangelicals assume it's the next or former or current president of whichever political party they disagree with. We're not told who the man of lawlessness is, and I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna try. I'll let Pastor Ryan do that next week. But that's not, that's not Paul's point anyways. Remember, he's trying to comfort the Thessalonians who have been deceived into believing that the day of the Lord has already come, but it, it hasn't. And so Paul begins to describe the, the workings of the man of lawlessness who will come before that day in order to convince the Thessalonians that, that these teachings are false. They need to believe the truth. Paul shows that the man of lawlessness will be a visible figure, some, someone who's in the public eye. He will oppose all religious figures and, and the gods that they represent, including Jesus Christ, the true and living God. The man of lawlessness will arrogantly exalt himself and take his seat in the temple of God. And it's clear uh, as, as we read this that Paul has in mind uh, the prophecy of Daniel. We can look in Daniel chapter 11, verses uh, 36 through 38. 
when, when, when that prophet tells us his vision of, of, uh, of the, the day of the Lord and what will happen then. Daniel wrote, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for whatever is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. This is confusing. Because Paul is presenting this as, as something that's happening in the future. But at this point, the, the temple is still in Jerusalem when Paul wrote Second Thessalonians. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That's 7070 AD by the Romans, which means it's not there now. So so maybe Paul's right that the man of lawlessness hasn't appeared at the time that Second Thessalonians was written, but but did he come between Second Thessalonians and 70 AD before the temple was destroyed? Did we miss it? Did we miss the day of the Lord? I, I, I think the evidence is clear that we haven't. We're still living here in the world and our, our Lord Jesus has yet to return and bring us home. So maybe Paul means a different temple. Perhaps the heavenly temple that we're, we're told about in the New Testament. But a man of lawlessness taking his seat in the heavenly temple seems even less plausible than us missing the day of the Lord. This is a confusing passage, guys. And, and I know this because every commentary I looked up, every, every other preacher's sermon I tried to listen to in preparing for this sermon, they all told me that this is a difficult passage. And so I know this is tough. Um, and, and, but Paul's original audience they had been taught some things that we haven't. So we can piece together enough to know what we're supposed to know about the end times and about the coming of the Lord Jesus, about our gathering together with him, about the man of lawlessness, the, the mystery of lawlessness that we're about to, to, to hear about. But there's still a lot of mystery surrounding the end times. And that's, that's okay. We can live in that tension because we have the peace of the hope of the gospel in, in the midst of of this big question mark that we're left with. Paul continues in verse five. He says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? <clears throat> Paul's question implies that the church had been taught thing, these things about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering of the church on the day of the Lord. In, in his previous letter to the Thessalonians, um, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18, Paul wrote this. We Pastor Ryan just preached on this, not, not a, but a few weeks ago. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The Thessalonians 
should have been able to evaluate that false teaching that's been circulating in, in the meantime between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and go, oh, Paul just wrote about this. We're, we're supposed to be fine. This is what it's going to look like. We're good. They had what they needed to, to know what they should have known. But this false teaching is causing anxiety because they've forgotten. All they needed to do was remember what Paul had taught them. This is important in, in, their, in their time, and it's important in our time as well. It seems like every so often a trendy new teaching will emerge in evangelical circles that will pick up some momentum and sell some books, maybe get you to a, a conference, right? Whether it's a Jabez prayer that guarantees you expanded horizons, I, I make fun because I prayed that prayer too when I was in, in high school. Or open theism, right, which, which postulates whether or not God can choose to know the future or he can choose to not know or something like that. Or, or maybe a popular preacher advising Christians to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. That happens. It happens all the time, and it's, it's happening now. And, and churches and their elders have the ongoing responsibility to, to point out false teachings and explain their danger. And, and, to, and to remind the church of the timeless truths of the scriptures. Jude. Uh, was, uh, was a church leader and likely an, one of the earthly brothers of our Lord. He wrote a letter, and in, in Jude verse 3, it's only one chapter, so it's Jude 3, he writes this. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude, in the first century, has to write to the churches around him and say, contend for the faith once handed down. They're already appealing to orthodoxy. Here's what our, our prophets and apostles, here's what the Lord has told us. We've got to stand firm. That's, that's next week. That's next week's sermon. That we've got to stand firm on the word of God. Paul is essentially reminding the Thessalonians in this passage and reminding us not to get caught up in unique and creative doctrines which emerge apart from scripture or emerge because somebody's twisted scripture to mean something it never meant. Paul continues to, to, um, to, to reference some teaching about, about this man of lawlessness as, as we get to verse six. He says, and you know what it is... And you know what is restraining him, that is the man of lawlessness, now, so that he may be revealed in his time. He goes on, he's, he's saying, here's, here's what you know about why the man of lawlessness isn't here. There's something that they know about that is restraining this lawless one from coming now, um, but, but Paul, Paul doesn't give us any identifier as to who this, or what this this restrainer is. Some of the, of the theologians in the past have, have, have said, oh, it's St. It's Saint Michael the Archangel. Or some have said it's, it's the Holy Spirit himself restraining the, the, the man of lawlessness. Or, or, or one I read uh, even pointed out it's, it, it could be Satan, right? Satan's biding his time and figuring out when. He's going to do his thing, and, and, he, and it's Satan 
restraining the man of lawlessness until his time. There, there, there are positive and, and negative, negatives to all of these views, but the point that Paul is making is not so much about who the restrainer is or what, but about the reality that this man of lawlessness will not be revealed until the proper time. There, there is a plan that has its origin in the will of our sovereign God. The, the man of lawlessness isn't going to shake free of, of God's will and somehow come into power against the Lord's best efforts, just ruin his plans, rushing him along. God's in control. And for the Thessalonians, anxious as they are about the possibility that they missed Jesus' second coming, this is good news. Their redeeming Savior and ours won't be thwarted by a plan going awry. He won't be rushed. He won't be absent-minded. He's not going to forget anyone behind. No one's being left behind. Let the hearer understand. God is in charge. Everything is going according to plan. And the lawless one will be revealed in his time and not a moment sooner. Paul continues in verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. What we learn here is that while the man of lawlessness is not yet in the world, the mystery of lawlessness is. When we see the word mystery in the Bible, uh, it isn't talking about a, a secret that we're supposed to piece together using the evidence around us. Uh, that's, that's more of like a Sherlock Holmes mystery, right? Uh, where, where, where we have to discover the truth for ourselves as we, as we figure it out slowly but surely. Mystery in the Bible refers to some reality, some truth, some glorious truth that God had formerly kept to himself but now has revealed or uncovered for his people at the proper time. Paul uh, or the man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed, but the powers of darkness, satanic and evil works are present in this world. And Paul is signaling to the Thessalonians that the end was not immediately on them because whatever it is that's restraining the lawless one is still restraining him. Um, but there is a spirit of opposition to the kingdom of God that is present in this world today. It was present in Paul's time. It's been present ever since. We can see it. It's not just our culture which opposes goodness and righteousness and godliness and faithfulness to God. The world is lawless. It doesn't submit to the Lord of the universe, the king, the high king, the majesty, the creator on high. This is why we cling to and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the rightful king. He is the way. He is righteous and his way is righteous. And Christians who stand for this are and have always been labeled as extremists, subverters of, of the truth. They've been opposed by the powers that be. 
And we don't seek to be troublemakers in, in whatever society we find ourselves in, but, but we do refuse to bow down to false gods and false doctrines. And when we do that, it highlights, it, it, it's like a big neon sign that says, there's a difference between us and them. There's a divide between those who, uh, who, have, who have the mystery of God as revealed in the gospel and those who are living within this mystery of lawlessness. And Paul goes on, he, he says, and when the lawless one, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So once the restrainer is out of the way, only then will the lawless one be revealed and, and all the wicked things that Paul wrote in verse four will take place. The opposition to all, the, all gods and religions, the blasphemy and self-exalting actions pridefully taken against the Lord God, all of it will be revealed. Paul points this out to remind the church that none of this has happened yet. That it should be obvious to the Thessalonians that okay, this doctrine that we've been taught is false. I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to be shaken. I can trust what Paul has taught me, what the Lord has taught me through Paul. And if that wasn't comforting enough, look at this battle scene, right? Isaiah actually tells us what, uh, what God showed him about that day in Isaiah 11.4. Uh, Isaiah says, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Oh, I love that, right? And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. I think that's what Paul is referring to. And he, he says, the, the Lord will kill the lawless one with the breath of his mouth, right? Now, now listen, the, the scriptures are the, the holy inspired Word of God, written by the, the, the Holy Spirit as he carried men along, prophets and apostles and witnesses to the apostles, writing his word for us that we are supposed to know and take with us in order to, to know God, in order to know what he wants for us. It is the most epic, beautiful, awesome story of all time. But we live in the generation of Star Wars and the Lord of the Rings Marvel, DC comic universe movies, right? Even the worst action movies have an epic, climactic, long-lasting battle scene that grips a, a viewer, right? And, and, and tempts us not to blink for minutes on end. I remember the first time I watched uh, the, the very first Rocky movie. That's still my, like, probably in my top three favorite movies of all time. Rocky, the original, Right? And there's this long-awaited battle between Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed. And it finally starts, and it lasts, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like a two-minute scene. Like, these guys are duking it out for, for, like, a big chunk of the movie. The hero goes down, and he gets back up, and he starts swinging, right? He's fighting back. There's exciting music. Mick is in the corner, like, screaming at him. He's murdering him, right? And the, there's, there's Adrian. They keep cutting to to the hero's wife who, who doesn't want to watch but can't take her eyes off of the scene. And it's, and it's awesome. And Rocky goes the distance and he loses, but he wins in our hearts, right? And, and it's just epic. And this is just a Hollywood movie. But here, it's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul is like, and then the, the day of the Lord will come. And then he gives us one verse, one sentence. The lawless one appears 
then Jesus will kill him by breathing on him and he's annihilated. The end. I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> You're like, you gotta give me something, right? Like, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna get into that. I wanna see it, right? I wanna, I wanna hear like the, the, the blows like hitting the antichrist. I wanna see him, I wanna see like a Mortal Kombat style uppercut, right? Like, give me something exciting here. Now, this isn't, get me wrong, don't get me wrong, this isn't boring, right? Anybody who's been suffering through lives where the mystery of lawlessness affects us day after day after day knows that this is a, it is a blessed hope that our Lord Jesus is going to come and he is going to destroy the man of lawlessness and, and, and we will be set free from all sin and death, right? The, the coming of the Lord is something for us to hope in. We look forward to it. I think, I think the abrupt, and, and dare I say, forgive me, Lord, if this is, if this is wrong, but the, the boring nature of this scene that Paul paints for us here is meant to convey just how awesome our sovereign God and King is. This isn't, like, none of this is going to be hard for him. Jesus is going to come. There's, it's, I mean, it's the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe. He, he didn't just make the, the universe, guys. He, he upholds it by the word of his power every moment, right? And he's going to come in, and the man of lawlessness is going to be like, I am God. And he's going to go, blow him out like a candle. That's exciting, Right? If we will remember the truth, if we will cling to the truth that's been taught to us, we will have a clarity where there was once confusion. We'll have, we'll have fortitude where there was fear. We're going to have assurance where there was, there was deception. And we will not be quickly shaken in our faith. Now, we move on to the second part, the last part of this of this passage. Up to this point, Paul has been making the point to the Thessalonian church that there is no need to be afraid that the day of the Lord has passed them by. They had been forgetful of what they already knew and just needed a reminder. But now Paul shows the Thessalonians why rejecting the truth doesn't just make our lives more anxious and confusing, but ultimately it leads to delusion and judgment and condemnation for the unrighteous. In verse 9, he writes, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Skipping back to the, before the anticlimactic battle between Christ and the lawless one, Paul explains the insidious nature of the work of this figure. He's only a man, but he is being endorsed and empowered by Satan to do works, supernatural works, which will legitimize his blasphemous claim of divinity. He'll perform signs to, pro to provide evidence that he is something special. There will be wonders that shock and horrify those who behold him. Jesus warns us that this will happen in, in Matthew 24. If we go back there, we read from this, this passage earlier. Uh, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as, the light, as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
And Paul continues in verse 10. He says, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. See, the miracles of Christ, the miracles that Christ performed in his ministry attested to his divine nature. And this, not just his, his power over the elements of the world, right, which is pretty awesome and fun to think about, but it also reveals his righteous, godly, and loving nature. Christ healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He gave life. He, and it produced peace and joy. His works, the works of Christ and during his earthly ministry led people to worship God and to have faith in his promises. But the lawless one's miracles, well, they'll attest to his nature as well. They will lead people away from God. Uh, the, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, will do works to deceive the world, to, to lead people to reject the gospel. And, and because our eternal destiny is bound up with truth, those who are deceived, those who are disloyal to the truth, will perish. Paul is subtly or maybe not so subtly, warning the Thessalonians not to continue down the path of entertaining false teachers and false teachings in their church. If they begin to reject the truths that they had received from Paul, it is a slippery slope that leads to a, a hardened heart to the gospel. And there is no life, there is no salvation apart from receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul ends this passage writing, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Last week, Pastor Ryan showed us through the, the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul's teaching on the righteous judgment of, of all the world faithful believers, sinful unbelievers, and all for his glory. Here we see in graphic detail the fearful and terrible nature of God's judgment on unbelievers. Those who have rejected the truth of the gospel and instead buy in and put their lot in with uh, the wicked and deceitful and satanic works of the, the lawless one, they're, they're judiciously blinded and confounded by God so that they can no longer distinguish between the truth and a lie. They have rejected the truth and believed what is false, and so God gives them over to the error that they have embraced. The psalmist writes of this in Psalm 81. It's incorrect in your, in your connector, but Psalm 81, verses 11 through 13. He writes, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Because they refuse to love the truth, God has judged them, which results in them embracing the most distorted lie. Right? They, they have bought in with the lawless one, he who exalts himself over the Lord Jesus Christ, and these perishing sinners will join in that blasphemous delusion, exalting him as well. 
Paul later describes this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Brothers and sisters, this difficult and confusing passage may be cryptic in its description of the, the man of lawlessness and the mystery of lawlessness. It may not give us the definitive answers a lot of us would welcome regarding the coming of the Lord Jesus and the gathering of his people together to himself, but Paul is very clear in his purpose for this section. We must not fall into the foolish temptation to reject the truth. We must not fall into the temptation to reject the truth of the scriptures. When people begin to toy with false teachings and embrace false teachers, it can lead us to become numb to the foundational truths of our faith. And a failure to love truth, especially gospel truth, especially the truth of the, of the Christ of the gospel, it leads to delusion, which leads to judgment, which leads to condemnation. We cannot be flippant about our commitment to that faith that was once, once for all delivered to the saints. We must declare our love to the truth and dedicate ourselves to walking in it because Jesus is coming back. And he will gather us together in him. I don't know when, but he will. And when he does, it will be glorious. And I don't want you to miss that. Paul writes later, later on in his ministry to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, thinking about these people who have rejected the truth. He says, in, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I don't want to miss that. I don't want y'all to miss that. And we, we as the, the church of Jesus Christ, we don't want our, our loved ones, our neighbors to miss that. So let's proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the ends of the world. So what? Do I know and love the truth of God's word enough that it guards me from deception and moral corruption? That's the question that yeah, I want you to go home with to, today as we think about this passage, as we think about what Paul was, uh, was writing to the, the, the Thessalonian church. Do you know and love God's truth through his word enough that it, it's able to guard you from deception? When you hear a false teaching, when you hear a rumor, when a false teacher tells you something that tickles your ears that you want to hear, are you able to discern because of the word of God, that, that is a, that's a no-no. The temptations to look after signs and wonders and the gratification of fleshly desires are so deceptive. Mansman, it is so easy to get caught up in, in trendy, new-agey, worldly doctrines and beliefs, and we are so forgetful. But the word of God through the inspired scriptures of the Old and New Testament are such a blessing to us. They keep us on the straight path. They gently correct us. They, they rebuke us. They make us stable in our faith. There's peace in clinging to that faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
Don't forget that. Don't reject that. Timothy, uh, Paul, at the end of his, his, his life, writes to Timothy, his protege. He writes, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The good news is that our God has sent Jesus once to live a righteous life and to die for sinners like me and like you. And he has risen from the dead and he has promised to return. That promised day of the Lord when he will return and gather his redeemed people and slay the man of lawlessness and Satan, that is just as much a part of the good news as is his first coming. We long for his return because there is such hope in his decisive, boring, mighty final judgment of sinners and saints. And we can find rest in him to the end of days. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the promise that you are returning, that you have not left this world alone to, to fend for ourselves in the midst of the mystery of lawlessness, but that you have a plan, a definitive plan, a plan that you set forth from the, the foundations of the world to save your people, to bring your people to yourself. And, and you've made that happen. You've, you've saved us. Uh, you've made us your, your people through uh, the, the death, the resurrection, and, and the ascension of Christ our Lord. And so Lord, we look forward to your coming with hope. I pray for a, for a uh, for you to guide us and guard us from false teachings. Help us, Lord, to, be, um, to cling to your word, to cling to the, the truths handed down to us um, from, from of old that, that came from the apostles and the prophets um, through the word of God in the Bible. Lord, thank you for this gift. You had, you had no obligation to give us your word, but you are a good and merciful God. And so we praise you. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, our coming King, amen.